You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Alan Zeitlin, who holds a PhD in classics, ancient Greek and Latin literature and language, and has been a teacher at St. John's College in Santa Fe for over 15 years. Alan, welcome to our show. Thanks, Rabbi Neil. Nice to be here. So one of the texts that's taught at St. John's College is Homer's Odyssey, so um, let's start with who is Homer? Um, what do we know about Homer, you know, the Odyssey's supposed author? Yeah, that's a very good question. And the answer, the general answer is not much. Um, I think a way to approach this is to first um, talk about what the ancients thought they knew about the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the person they called Homer. Um, they thought he was a blind guy. Um, at least many of them thought that. And they thought, again, many of them, that he came from a Greek island called Chios. Um, well, why did they think that? They were making inferences based on the picture we get of the poet, the blind bard um, that we see in the Odyssey. There's a, there's an, uh, a scene in which there's dining and feasting, um, and a, a bard, a blind bard, appears and recites poetry. And the ancient Greeks thought, well, Homer has given us a little self-portrait here. So they assumed that um, the person traditionally responsible for these, these magnificent long poems was this blind guy. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head why they thought Chios, but anyway, there may have been a guild of um, Homer sons of Homer, who were also poets who came from Chios. That might be the reason. I've, I've forgotten the exact reason. But anyway, they thought there was a person. They thought he was blind and came from the eastern Mediterranean. Um, and that was great. Uh, we moderns uh, have more doubts about that. Um, what we've come to realize is that these poems are the product of uh, an oral tradition that lasted for centuries, really. So what you had in the, I guess, in the late Bronze Age and probably in the early Iron Age, so we're talking like 1000 BCE and a bit later, um, you had these illiterate poets. Um, Greek, Greece, what we now think of as Greece or the Greek world, had, had largely lost writing at this point. So you had these illiterate poets who would... Um, recite stories in rhyme, well, rhyme, I shouldn't say rhyme, in rhythm. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they just did it from memory. It's quite, in, quite an incredible feat, uh, even to recite, I think, a short poem in, 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 in rhythm. Um, so we think that the poems we have, the two big Greek ep epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are both products of that oral tradition. And... There may have been an individual who played a crucial role in shaping the, the final versions of these stories that, that emerged around the late, 
late 8th, early 7th centuries BCE. Mm. Uh, so there may have been an, an individual or possibly two individuals, if we think the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed by different people. There may have been an individual who put these poems into their final shape, but if so, we we don't really know anything about it. We think it was him, uh, a he, uh, although uh, Samuel Butler, an English um, writer of the 19th century, mischievously uh, wrote a book called The Authoress of the Odyssey, suggesting that it had been a woman. But anyway, we don't, we don't know really anything about Homer. I, I'm going to stick with that term because it's convenient, um, but, but we don't know really if there, if there was such a person. I'll say one more thing before I let you get back in. Uh, my own sense is that the poems are so beautifully shaped, they're so artistically fashioned, that there probably was a genius or two geniuses who, who put put them into their final shape um, and maybe had a role in, in, in getting them down into writing. So I guess, I mean, it's fascinating to hear how it was, is, may have been written. I, I, a number of people, yeah. a number of modern people haven't read the Odyssey. So so how would you describe it? What's the Odyssey about? Yeah, it's it's a long, well, not as long as the Iliad, but it's a pretty long poem, um, uh, a, basically about the return of an individual named Odysseus from the Trojan War. Now, the Trojan War is the subject of the other great epic poem, the Iliad, um, which tells how uh, a, a Greek queen either left with a lover or was stolen by a rapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a kind of broad spectrum of possibilities. Uh, the truth may lie somewhere in between. Anyway, the Iliad tells the story of that, that uh, taking of a queen and the attempt to get her back, ultimately by armed warfare, the, 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 the Hellenes, and the term that's used in the in the poem is Achaeans or Danaeans, but the, these folks um, went to the place where Helen, this beautiful queen, had been taken, um, and they besieged the city, trying to defeat the people uh, who were responsible, in their view, for the taking of, of this queen. Uh, so they laid siege to the city for ten years, and finally took it through the through the scheme of the famous Trojan horse, uh, which. Is credited to Odysseus that 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 piece of strategy. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, the Odyssey uh, charts his return. The, the Iliad doesn't. I'll say one last thing about the Iliad. The Iliad doesn't tell us the whole story of the the Trojan War, but it it focuses on about a month or a little more than a month toward the end of the war, and it, it it's a brilliant um, conception because even though it's focused on this short period of time in a ten year war. It gives us a real sense of what's happened and what's going to happen um, after that month. So anyway, getting back to the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus returns from this this long war, um, and it takes him a long, long time to get back. Uh, the war has lasted ten years, and he's on the road getting home to Ithaca, his his homeland in the west of the Greek world. He's on the road for 10 years. Well, maybe I shouldn't say the road. It's the sea, really, for the most right, part right. he's on. Um, so that's the, that's the basic idea of the story. But it, it's a very rich portrayal of what it's like for a soldier to return uh, home, 
the world has changed. His homeland has changed. His family, um, his community have been challenged by his absence in various ways and have undergone a lot of changes, some for the worse, most for the worse. Um, and um, uh, a lot of a lot of um, bad stuff has happened. And, and part of the interest in this is that the soldier has to change himself in order to reintegrate into his community. Um, Odysseus has to go from being a, a battlefield warrior to being somebody who can negotiate the, the, the complexities and challenges of civilian life. So that's, that's part of the interest, the real psychological change. So as, as well as being this psychological portrait of, of a man coming from war and reintegrating into society... I guess one of the one of the questions that I wonder is is what's the underlying basis of this? Is this a mythological tale, or does it actually have a basis in history in any way? Because I think I think the two, even though there's a similarity, it's still the same character. I think it speaks to an audience in a different way. If it is an account of someone returning home from something that really happened or an account of someone returning from home from a conflict that can be imagined. So is there a factual basis underlying the Odyssey? Yeah, we would, we would really like to know whether, whether there is or not. And I, I remember in graduate school, I, I was speaking with a classical archaeologist, and he said if I could just get enough money and the right permissions together, I know where to dig in Ithaca to find Odysseus's palace. Mm. <laughs> now that, that might have been a little bit on the romantic side. No <laughs> one has yet found Odysseus's palace on Ithaca, and, and um, we're, we're maybe not even 100% sure that the, there is an island, Ithaca, um, in western Greece now, but uh, we're not confident that's Odysseus's Ithaca. Uh, what I'll say is that it's pretty clear that there's some kernel of fact to the epic poems. Uh, these two great Greek epics. Um, uh, it's not as robust a, a picture as the original archaeologists thought. Um, this, um, I think he was German and not Austrian. This German archaeologist named Heinrich Schliemann was the one to uncover um, what we think is Troy, if there was a Troy. Mm. Uh, it's a place called Hisserlich uh, on the west coast of well, Turkey doesn't have an east coast on, on the coast of on the coast of Turkey. Anyway, Schliemann uh, dug at that site. He was he was captivated by the epics, um, and he he dug and he found this city. And wow, there was a lot there that looked like Homer's Troy. Well, subsequent archaeologists um, you know saw a lot of faults in what Schliemann did, mm-hmm. and uh, the picture ended up being quite a bit more complicated. Um, but We've, we've gotten some things um, that tend to confirm the idea that there was this very rich city at that place in the eastern Mediterranean and that it was destroyed by, by invaders. Um, and uh, we've even um, found mention of um, the, the Achaeans, and that's one of the uh, names right. that Homer uses for the for the. Um, the, the besiegers of Troy. I, I think I mentioned that he uses two terms: yeah. the Achaeans and the Danaeans. The word Greek is really a Roman word, so it's not not properly applied to these early early Greek-speaking people. 
uh, <laughs> even though I just did it, but there it is. Anyway, uh, we found linguistic traces of the Achaeans in the, in the languages that were spoken in what was called Asia Minor in the ancient world, mm-hmm. modern-day mm-hmm. Turkey, really. Anyway, there's, there's mention of the Achaeans, and there seems to be mention of King Priam. So that's very exciting to, to see these linguistic traces of, of what Homer described, a city, a city that was besieged and eventually taken. Um, I mean, so I think oh, I sorry, one last thing, the, the scholarly consensus seems to be that there's a historical kernel. Now, you know, the individual Odysseus, that gets more slippery and probably harder to pin down. The challenge, I'm sorry I interrupted, the challenge is, of course, just the same as, you know, from a rabbinic perspective, when we look at what used to be called biblical archaeology, and it sounds like um, the the challenge always used to be that people would take the biblical text and then go looking for it and then read into what was in the ground and say, look, you know, Leonard Woolley um, sending the text, the telegram from Mesopotamia saying, I found the flood. Uh, and, right. and then it's not the flood, it's a flood. Um, and um, so the, the challenge for us, of course, is if we went the other way, if we just looked in the ground and then drew conclusions from it, would we end up with the narratives that we know? And the answer is almost certainly not. But then if these narratives exist, and if there is confirmation, you know, from my perspective, again, as a rabbi, you know, people get very excited when they talk about the hapiru being discovered in Egyptian text, and they say hapiru is like the Hebrew, and therefore there's proof that the Hebrews were in were in Egypt. You say, but hapiru may not mean the same thing. So when you're talking about these terms of these individuals being found elsewhere, that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because that's we right. we don't yeah. know if that's the people of this story, or if the story is using the same terms but using them differently to how they were historically, because it could be a critique of the people, or it could be something praising the people unduly, or it could be a historical account. So it's it's really challenging, isn't it, when we're when we're exploring yeah. historicity of a text? No, I think that that's exactly right. All the all this evidence is is, is tantalizing, but um, uh, something less than decisive. Uh, and yeah, I. I don't know the details of these little linguistic remnants in the, I think they're in the Hittite text and the Hurrian text. Mm. Those were two languages spoken in uh, Asia Minor at that time. There, yeah, and Troy, I think what you're saying applies very well to to uh, ancient Mediterranean archaeology uh, as well as biblical archaeology. Uh, you know, we can we can find several destructions of this, right. of this city. Which right. which one? Will, if there if there was a, an expedition of Achaeans and Danaeans, which one which one uh, was their destruction the one they caused? Um, it's all it's all a bit misty. Uh, I guess the romantic in me wants to believe there there there's some truth to it, but uh, you know I think I think the scholars are going going to go on debating it for 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 centuries. Probably in perpetuity. If humanity right. lives that long, right? Right. Well, look. We need to take a break. Afterwards, I'd like us to explore why people should read the Odyssey, in your opinion. So we're going to take a pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, uh, Alan Zeitlin, a teacher at St. John's College for the last 15 years. And we'll be back after this break.
You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Alan Zeitlin, who holds a PhD in classics and who's been a teacher at St. John's College in Santa Fe for over 15 years. And we've been talking about Homer's Odyssey and the the historicity of it and, and who is Homer and what is the Odyssey about. I guess the, the next question for those who haven't read it, and if you're making your sales pitch for here's why you should read the Odyssey. What what about the values of the text? What values does this epic promote? Yeah, that's that's uh, interesting to think about. I, I think the the epic promotes a lot of important values that can that can make our lives better. But uh, I would say that the the most important one is the value of guest friendship, um, and the Greek word here is xenia. Um, it comes down to English. As, as probably many of our listeners will guess in words like xenophobic. Um, um, anyway, uh, xenia is this idea of hospitality or guest friendship, and it's absolutely central to the Odyssey. Um, if you are at your house and somebody shows up, well, you need to welcome that person, and um, you need to, ba- let's assume it's a he, uh, you need to bathe him. <laughs> you need to feed him, uh, and you can't ask his name until you've done those things. So um, there's a really high bar uh, for being a proper a proper host and really a proper person. If you if you don't observe the values of guest sh- guest friendship, you're you're not fully human. I think that's hmm. I think that's part of what the poem communicates to us. And I'm sure your mind flashes to. Abraham in in the Rashid, because uh, Abraham is a model model host. He's he knocks himself out um, for for anyone who comes by. Right, he runs out to the to the visitors um, at the terebinths of Mumre, and he it, it's according to you know tradition, uh, my tradition, you know days after he circumcised himself, but still he runs out to meet them. <laughs> But, <laughs> yeah. Maybe the text exaggerated but, there. But then, limp, but then, limp might be more like it. Right. This anyway, is this yeah, is quite an extraordinary demand on people, isn't it? Or is it yeah. that we've become so jaded that 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 seems demanding? Well, yeah, I don't like to think about the latter possibility, but that that's all too likely. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it, it's it's tricky um, for for hosts in the in the ancient um, Hellenic world, because we do see in the Odyssey itself uh, instances in which someone seems to be a reasonable guest, mm-hmm. but then turns out to be very dangerous to the, the household uh, into which he's been admitted. That, that the big example is the suitors um, in the Odyssey, because, uh, and we haven't done a lot of plot summary, which is probably a good thing, but while Odysseus is gone, people assume he's dead, and they want to court the young young men of the island and the neighboring islands want to court his wife, Penelope. Uh, so they show up, and according to the norms of guest friendship, they need to be admitted, they need to be wined and dined, but they stay on and on and right. on, just draining the wealth of Odysseus' house, and ultimately they, they start, once his son starts to wake up and show signs of becoming a man, and Sort of resenting their presence, they they begin to plot to kill him. So there's 
there's an example of guest friendship gone wrong, just the, the guest from hell, or guests from hell. So, um, so it's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky thing to be, to be a good host. So is this promoting perhaps, an, uh, I, I sounding a little like Plato, I guess, an ideal form without it actually being reality? So it would be ideal if everyone who came to our door could be welcomed and bathed and so on. But the reality of human nature is such that that is a wondrous thing to do and a potentially dangerous thing to do. Yeah, I I, I like that way of reading it. Um, In the poem, we do see um, some examples of first-rate guest friendship that well, things that things don't work out perfectly, so it's not an unattainable ideal, but the conditions have to be right. You have to have civilized people on both ends of it. Um, uh, Odysseus' son, in the first five books of the epic, goes traveling, um, trying to find out news about his father. He's he's been prompted to do that by the goddess Athena. Anyway, he shows up at the at the homes of two of Odysseus's old battle companions. Nestor and Menelaus, who have gotten home quite a bit earlier than Odysseus. And those are successful um, examples of Xenia. Telemachus, Odysseus' son, is, is treated beautifully, um, um, uh, provided with, with not only food and, and, and bathing, but also transportation, gifts. So it can work. Um, even there, there are dangers, because old Nestor, who's even more garrulous than I am, uh, wants to wants to retain Telemachus, and that's a slight mistake for a host. You don't you don't want to retain the get, the guest who needs to get on the road. Um, so yeah, I, even there, I was pointing to those as ideals. They're they're pretty close to instantiations of the ideal, but even there, there there's some some loose loose parts. Right. Uh, so uh, Menelaus is maybe a little more perfect as a host. In in um, our, in our last five minutes, I, I want to pick up on something. Because you said, you know, your guest, if he's male, what's what's the role oh, yeah. of what's the role of women in the epic? How are they portrayed? What's the um, because in a a modern audience has a differing perspective of the role of women in contemporary society. So in these last four or five minutes, what what can you share about women in the epic, and, and what do we learn from that? Yeah. Um- this is one of the striking and wonderful aspects of the epic. It does portray a patriarchal society. It doesn't kid us that, that, that this was a, a male-dominated society, especially in terms of public life. Um, but it offers rich and varied portraits of women. And the one I would point to most of all is Penelope, Odysseus's wife. Um, she's largely an indoor person. <laughs> Unlike the men, she can't really leave the house. But she's incredibly smart. She's really Odysseus's equal, if not his superior in cleverness. Um, and uh, she has to <laughs> she has to navigate her own challenges. Odysseus has to deal with the sea and various foreign people. Probably many of the listeners know about the Cyclops, the one-eyed mm-hmm. monster man who tries who, well, tries to eat Odysseus, who would like to eat Odysseus, ends up eating, I think, six of his crewmen. Anyway, Penelope, in her indoor world, has to navigate equally equally hard challenges. 
um, and she does so successfully. I'll just give an example of her of her cleverness. Uh, it comes up toward the end of the poem when Odysseus is back. He has been disguising himself as a beggar in order to outmaneuver the suitors, um, and uh, he's finally killed pretty much all the suitors. He's gussied himself up, so he's looking something like his old self, no longer like a bedraggled beggar, and he's pretty... He's not quite one-on-one with Penelope, but they're sitting there, Polemicus, the son is there, a few other people. Anyway, Penelope decides to test him, because she's, she's really cautious, just as Odysseus is. not 100% sure this is her husband, and she also needs to know that he's her husband emotionally. So what she does, at a certain point, she says, well, uh, she says to one of the maidservants who's present, well, um, uh, go, go, um, uh, set up the bed for uh, this stranger since it's been moved from where it used to be. I'm probably garbling this slightly, but that's roughly what she says. Right. And Odysseus bursts out in anger. What? The bed's been moved? How can that happen? And and what he does in his anger is to reveal that he knows the secret of the bed, which only he and Penelope and one very trusted maidservant know. The secret is that the bed has been carved into a living tree, which has its own symbolic beauty. Hmm. Um, and, and the word bed in Greek, une, can symbolize the marital relationship and the sexual bond between a husband and a wife. So this idea that the bed has been moved, it's, it's disturbing to him on so many levels. Um, and because he reacts not only with anger, but also with, you know, a revelation that he knows the secret of the bed, Penelope can finally breathe. <laughs> she knows it's her husband. She knows he cares about the marriage. She knows... He has that special knowledge that only her husband would have. So it's a brilliant ruse that she comes up with, and it, it, it's the kind of testing and trickery that Odysseus himself <laughs> can, can do and often does very well. Um, so it's, it's a great portrait of a woman who's the equal of a great hero. I think it's fascinating for you to, to share these differing aspects with us, this idea of, of guest friendship, this idea of of women who, um, even though they may be essentially housebound, like Penelope, as you were saying, can come up with these creative, loving ways, you know, of agency, essentially. Um, with, with seconds left, let me just ask your final pitch to someone who's thinking, wow, that sounds really interesting. What, what's the, the one most important reason why someone should read the Odyssey? today in in 30 seconds if you can all right it'll teach you the meaning of life okay that's a gross exaggeration <laughs> and my time's ticking away but odysseus is struggling against the possibility that his life could become meaningless if he doesn't make it home if he doesn't make it to his loved ones and integrate with them he will feel his life was meaningless and he struggles heroically to achieve that and he does so he's a model for us of how to make our lives meaningful Wonderful. I thank you so much for introducing this text, this ancient text, and trying to help us engage in it again. I, I really appreciate you coming here. So thank you to Alan Zeitlin, teacher at St. John's College, um, for, for sharing the Odyssey with us. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance 
of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.